This morning we're going to be in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can find the one in the back of the pew in front of you. Uh, if you don't have one, we're happy for you and would love for you to take that home. If you're not familiar with how to use the Bible, you can find a table of contents at the front, and it'll let you know where the book of 1 Corinthians is. The large numbers are going to be chapters, and the small numbers are going to be verses. And so again, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 8 through 13. Today, as we really wrap up chapter 13 in this, we find ourselves resuming our series on Christian unity, and the way that all these things work out, chapter 12 really kind of shows us the indispensable nature of each and every member, and just how everybody has a different gifting, everybody has something that in salvation God has given you for the good of the church, and, and it's to be used, it's to be implemented, not greedily held on to and, and, and enjoy just for your sole benefit, but it's supposed to be for the people around you, for the people you see to your left, to your right, in front of you, and behind you, kind of even as you sit here in this play. And then Paul rolls into chapter 13, and he wants them to understand that as important as they think their various gifts are, look at my shiny new penny, how great it is, just imagine how, how much better love is and how love is meant to be the very character or nature in any use of our gifts. And then in 14, he gives some, some points of application, kind of how the different gifts are to be used. He gives us kind of rules. He prescribes some, some methodology for that. But as we wrap up our understanding of love, I just want to revisit what Paul has already given us. If you went back to verses 1 through 3 in chapter 13... He describes really three kinds of actions or three things that are taking place. And so there's the, the idea of being, being overly spiritual, but not having love as this governing force contained within your spirituality. He says, if I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm an annoyance. It's kind of how you can understand what he goes on to say. And then the second verse, he says, look, if you understand everything, if you're brilliant and wise and people would say of you, uh, he or she is brilliant and wise and it is love to hear them talk, but, but these things don't flow from a genesis, a beginning, a starting point of love, it, it, it's worthless. And then he looks at the last thing, he says, just imagine then, if you're the most generous person ever, if you give everything away, but you do this primarily uh, not from a place, not from a starting disposition of love, then even your act of generosity is empty, it's bankrupt, it's, it's worthless. So he begins to call into question the very nature of their kind of manner of existence there in Corinth. And then he turns in 4 through 7, he says, look, some of you have so radically misunderstood love, let me just give you a few definitional things that, that kind of spell what this is. And so he said, love is patient and kind, it doesn't envy, it doesn't boast, it's not arrogant or rude, it doesn't insist on its own way. And so he just kind of spills over and over and over again all these things, leading to the end, uh, understanding that they would say, well, I guess we've not been very loving I guess we've not been engaged in things that, that as Paul renders it, are loving. And so I, I, I guess, presumably, we need to change our behavior. We need to do something different. And Paul would say, well, now you're on to something. And so he has told us what love isn't. He's told us what love is. And what he does in 8 through 13 is he shows us that love is supreme because love is eternal. But when we think about this, when we really come into to contact with the first little phrase there in verse 8, that love never ends, how many of us have encountered love that does indeed end? Our, our spouse left us, and so we're married and our wife takes off. Our, 
Uh, we're married and our, our husband takes off. We're, we're children and our, our parents get divorced. And so we, we've seen love fracture. We've seen love break. We've seen love wielded as a weapon. And we've seen love live this kind of pathetic and anemic life. And so when we see that love never ends, we're like, oh my goodness, will the hypocrisy never end? Because every form and characteristic of love that we've previously experienced in our own person, every form of this has been a disappointment. You see, this doesn't point to a deficiency in love, but it points to a deficiency in our experience of love. And these things are totally different from one another, right? And so our experience for love can be disappointing, and some of us have been the sole kind of extender and propagator of that disappointment. That when somebody speaks of love, and they're like, oh, do you know Matt? And he's just such a loving person. You're like, that schmuck? Like, really? I've never seen him to be particularly loving. I've never seen him to be particularly bright or erudite. And, and, and so your, your understanding of love throws through my deficiencies, flows through my ineptitude. Well, this doesn't say much about love. Perhaps it says a lot about me. I would say that it says a lot about your discernment. There you go. Humor, right? Humor is really difficult. It, it offends sometimes. But he says here, love never ends. When we understand that love primarily flows from the character of God and who God is, 1 John 4, 8 tells us, and 1 John 4, 16 repeats this idea that God is love. And so from a Christian context, we cannot understand love appropriately, rightly, and correctly outside of a right understanding of reckoning that it comes from God. And so love uh, kind of adopts for itself the character of God. But our culture as well, it, 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 it is enamored with a sense of love. And so endless songs are written about it. Peter Cetera, you know, saying about the, the glory of love. We see the unending quality of love. We see people constantly profess love. So when we see that and when we hear that, we would say, oh, this falls short. But recognize this, they're catching on to the general revelation of our God who's revealed love to be something fantastic. And so we see people in our culture describe love or struggling to love their spouse or, or struggling to love their kids or just struggling to be a loving person. We recognize that they're tapping into some attribute of God and it gives us an entry point into the gospel. And we're able to counter with, did you know that the Bible says love never ends? And they may say something in response to that sounds exhausting. This sounds just, just, just really exhausting. Uh, you mean that I have to be loving, and you, and, and you can counter and say that God has been loving towards you, that God is the genesis of love, that God moves and is disposed in love, and that his very, very character of love extends to you a knowledge of him. This love never ends. It's fantastic the way that they would have understood this and received this from Paul the word that he uses there gives us the understanding that love never stumbles, it never falters, it never, it never mistakes a step and trips and falls. And so we see not only the fact that it, that, it, that it knows no end, but we see the fact that it is absolutely pure and unsullied. Man, this is the kind of thing we can get behind, right? This is the kind of thing that we can invite people to. This is the kind of thing that somebody would desire to know. Not their paltry faulty misunderstanding of love and all of its various failures, but that, that might, they might know love in the person of God. Now, it has been the particular issue there in Corinth that they have been using spiritual gifts as a billy club. 
to just kind of beat people up. And so it's their bully pulpit. And so whether it's prophecy or tongues or healing or whatever various gifts that they've been displaying, they've been using that to puff themselves up and to make themselves appear better than those around them. So you can imagine the scenario that somebody walks in and he says, uh, hi, my name is John, and, and I speak in tongues. And they're like, oh my goodness, have you met John? He's the most spiritual person I've ever met. This is the way that he prays. And then Linda walks in and she says, oh, have you met me? My name is Linda, and I, I, you know, I engage in prophecy. And they're like, oh, forget John. We got Linda over here, and she's so much more amazing. And then somebody walks in in the back, and they say, oh, my name is Bob, and I engage in knowledge, and I have all this spiritual knowledge. And they're like, forget these two losers. We have to know Bob because he's the be-all and end-all of knowledge. And they loved it. And they're completely enamored by it, and they're abusing the fellow people in the church with it. And so Paul turns, and he's already kind of given this corrective, right? Back in 12.7, he said that, that the gifts are for the building up of the body. And still we see them abused today. That if today, where you sit, if you name the name of Jesus in salvation, God has given to you supernaturally different giftings for an express purpose of building up the body. Not so that people would look at you and say, oh, how great and mighty are you, but so that they would recognize the movement of God in your life, be drawn closer to him, and that the body would become stronger and more unified. And then in verse 11, we recognize in, back in chapter 12 that God, in his sovereignty, in his perfection, knew you. Like, he knew your deficiencies, he knew your weaknesses, he knew the crowd that you would travel in. And he knew what they would need, and so he gave to you the perfect gift for them. Now, how great and loving is this, right? That our God, when he looked down and he said, I know Matt, and, and, and I know Brian, and I know Vern, and I know Sally, and I know Dee, and I know the people that are going to be around them, and I know their particular failures, and I know particularly how they lean, so I'm going to give them this gift. And it's going to be a beautiful burden for them to exercise because of the people around them, because of their weaknesses, because of their disposition, and it's there. And so when we begin to see this, the wonderful gift that God has given us in salvation and the spiritual gifts that he gives us to exercise, it calls us to walk in love towards the around us, those around us because we are able to exercise nothing but humility in the exercise of these gifts. But Paul begins to turn to the gifts and, and their subject directly. And so look what he addresses here. He says, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And he uses uh, two verbs really to describe it. He says they're going to pass away and they're going to cease. Now, this would have been incredibly shocking for those there in Corinth. Imagine that you've been given something incredibly spectacular, right? I mean, just, just phenomenal. Some, some talent, some ability, and everybody you meet wants to see it. And, 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 and your whole culture and your whole community just kind of cycles around it and feeds back into how good, great, and wonderful it is. It becomes, in some sense, your identity. It becomes, in some sense, kind of how people know you, what they know of you, and what they expect from you. Now, in the midst of this, imagine that somebody comes up and says, look, you're really good at this. It's going away. It's not going to last much longer. And you've completely missed the whole picture of what it's to be used for. Begin to kind of recognize how arrogant, perhaps, you've been. And you begin to think back through conversations that you've had with people and begin to think, man, I wonder how my discussions of this and how my use of this gift affected them. Admittedly, I, I, I can't say that my use of this gift probably drew them closer to God. I can say that it certainly pushed them further from me. 
Paul goes in and he says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. It's going to pass away. There's going to be no reason for prophetic speech at the second return and when we live for all eternity in the presence of God. There's going to be no reason for it. There's going to be no existence of it because it just won't serve any purpose. He says, as for tongues, they will cease. There's going to be no reason for this. You can communicate with God right there. You, you'll, you'll be living on the new heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is walking down the street, and there's no reason to engage in speaking in tongues. You can say, hey, Jesus, how's it going? He's like, I'm fine. I'm just going to mind my own business. Just going to walk on wherever. Go to the supermarket. Be right back. And just kind of stand there and join the queue and wait to talk to Jesus. He says, as for knowledge, it will pass away. Now, he's going to pick that up in a second. And the reason that we'll no longer need a spiritual gift of knowledge is because we will have all necessary knowledge. Look what he says in verse 9. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, think of the humility contained within that statement. Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit to write, to, to pin Scripture is able to invite them into the open reality that even as they prophesy, God is giving them segmented, portioned out, specific knowledge, right? Specific knowledge, not whole and complete knowledge. And so he, he invites them to walk in the humility of the exercising their limited ability and gifting. He says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. Man, this is such a, such a it just kind of enabled idea. The humility that Paul espouses here, just think about what this humility shows to us right now, where we sit. So you and I open the Bible when we begin to read the Bible, and, we, and, and soon we'll find that there are certain open-handed and closed-handed ideas, right? So as we encounter various things in the text, there are things that we're going to come to that, that you're going to think one way, and I'm going to think another way. Now, some of those are going to be open-handed issues, and so as we come to those and we disagree, I don't use the closed hand to punch you in the face, and neither do you use your closed hand to punch me in the face. But, but others of those are going to be open-handed ideas, things that we can readily disagree upon and maintain Christian fraternity, one with another. Brother, we can be brothers and sisters in Christ and recognize that it's helpful in some cases to disagree. So let's just kind of run through these so I can offend everybody equally. And so one of the things that would be kind of an open idea that we could say open-handed, we can still communicate with one another, we can still work and partner with one another, would be the idea, and this is probably anathema for a Baptist pastor to say, but baptism, baptism. There, we have Presbyterian brothers and sisters in Christ that we have radically different understandings of what baptism looks like, right? Convictionally, my reading of the text, I think that baptism is by confessing adults by full immersion. But they would look at it and say, what are you, nuts? Can't you read the Bible? Certainly it's not that. It's a sign and seal of the covenant. And so they have good reasons for understanding this. I would look at it and say, in charity, I believe you're wrong. They would look at me in charity, probably a little smarter, and say, you're wrong. And they would have a really great scoffing laugh, like, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> idea of gender role. The idea of gender roles is certainly an open-handed issue. We recognize that in creation, God created us male and female, right? With certain distinctives. But how we parse out the particulars of that, even in the home, are certainly open-handed issues. Culturally, I believe that, 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 that uh, conservative Baptists specifically, for a long time, tailored uh, the man as the primary breadwinner. The woman stays home. It's just her job to cook and to clean and to be quiet. 
and they would say that this is how this is articulated, and anything outside of this is a closed-handed issue. Well, let's pry that cold, dead hand open and say that it is an open-handed issue not readily addressed in Scripture. And we can disagree, and we can have fraternity with one another, and it's helpful for us too. It's good for us too. Bless you. But as we move into this, see, look, I mean, there, there's, there's a methodology in preaching that says don't address that. That's an open-headed issue, so we address it, and there you go. <laughs> so let's move from easy to hard. It's certainly an open-handed issue for how we address the issue at the border in immigration. But this is an open-handed issue. When you read through the Bible, it doesn't prescribe, you need to do this, you need to do this, and you need to do this. But what does it prescribe? That we need to look at the immigrant, legal and illegal, and extend love and grace and mercy to them. This is a closed-handed issue. While our discussions on how we might properly address and what is the Christian's role in addressing this are open-handed, the Christian's disposition to those disenfranchised, to those marginalized, to those at risk is never an open-handed issue. And so our speech has to be tailored as such, right? So when we find people that says, oh, we need, you know, we build a wall, make it high, and keep them out, we can have charitable conversations with the same people who would say we need to have no borders, we need to invite all. And we can have warm and charitable and gracious conversations with those people even if we disagree, no matter which side we're on, because we recognize the distinct value in personhood that God has implanted in them. Amen? So open-handed and closed-handed, and you see how they work together. There's some closed-handed issues. Recognize that salvation is only in Christ, and so it's decidedly exclusive. There's no other name in heaven by where we must be saved. The divinity, that God is fully God, the Trinity, it's a closed-handed issue. There are certain open-handed and closed-handed issues, and we have to be able to recognize and discern the difference between the two, lest we uh, have a complete shipwreck of our faith and we shipwreck the faith of others. We know in part and we prophesy in part. There's such good news. He says, when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Man, that all of my inadequacies go away. That all the things I don't know are going away. That all of my sickness is going away. That all of my inability is going away. Paul writes and has this wonderful statement of this in Titus 2. He says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So this is our disposition. We live restrained and godly lives. We're calling people to know him. He's extended salvation to us and them. And what are we awaiting? He says we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's this terrific idea contained within Scripture that, man, this place is not home. It's not just the idea that we're passing through, but our full allegiance rests in a homeland that we know not, in a place we've been to not yet. This is where he calls our allegiance to be. This is where he calls us to set our thoughts and our hearts upon and when we set our hearts and our thoughts upon the place we've not yet been to, this idea that Jesus is coming and coming again, Lord, please come soon. It fundamentally changes, it alters how we engage. 
because we recognize that every single time we, we meet a person, every time we talk to them, every decision we make, every step we take has the potential to be fundamentally impactful for the eternity of the people that we engage with. He wants us to understand this, so he uses two illustrations to, to desperately plea with those there in Corinth, and I would, I would make the point that to desperately plea with us today that we must live lives as if eternity matters. And eternity is our permanent abode, and, a per, and eternity is where we're headed towards. And so the first illustration he uses is one from maturity. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. And for those of you who have kids, you would say, well, this is clear. And for all of us who have been children, we would say, this is, this is clear and I understand this. I spoke like a child. I, I, I didn't use prepositions. I used, you know, poor use of tenses. Uh, Gray, or not Graham, Wyatt yesterday said, you eat me. And I, I think what he meant to say was, you eat with me. I was really confused, so I took a little nibble. wasn't what he meant. <laughs> he said, I, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. And so children live in the moment. They have no uh, ability really in some sense to think long-term and think long-term about consequential decisions. And this is how many of us engage and many of us live. He says, I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But listen to this decided shift. When I became a man, when I grew up, I had this decided break with childish ways. Some of us have continued to live out our faith in this childish expression of it, refusing to mature and grow in your faith. Content and satisfied with easy living and kind of disposable Christianity. You pick it up and use it when it is useful and beneficial to you, and you jettison it and throw it in the trash when it really begins to cost you something. You're still reasoning like a child. You're still thinking like a child. And as evidenced in your prayer to God, you're still speaking as a child. I believe God would have us, and Scripture gives us this repeated refrain, that we are to grow up into full maturity. This is where God has you headed. Follow him in this path. Then he talks about the realm of kind of not seeing and not understanding. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now Corinth was, was famed and well known for polished bronze mirrors. And so when he spoke to this and he says, we see in a mirror dimly, it would just kind of clue in for them. Oh, we understand. He's talking about uh, the livelihood. He's talking about the notoriety of our city. And he says, he points at the deficiencies in it. He says, we see in a mirror dimly. No, nobody there in Corinth would have said, oh, do you see this mirror? It's the greatest thing in the world. I walk around all day like this, just kind of, oh, look how great all these people are. No, nobody's doing that. Nobody's doing that, right? Nobody would say that, oh, you know, FaceTime is so great and Skype is so great that I'm going to exchange all personal interactions with this because it's far superior to engaging with a person face-to-face. And so Paul is pointing out the deficiencies of this medium for seeing. He says, we see now... In a mirror dimly. But soon is coming a time we'll see him face to face. Moses in Numbers 12 was having a disagreement with with his sister and his brother, with Miriam and Aaron. And and they really had this kind of bend toward Moses. Are you the only one who can speak to God? Are you the only one who can engage in God? So God stands up for Moses. And he says, look, Moses is a prophet unlike anybody else because I speak to him face to face. 
There's something decidedly special and intimate with God's radical engagement of Moses as opposed to his engagement with Miriam and Aaron. And there's something decidedly different even for those of us who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We have God residing in us and guiding us, leading us concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, communicating with us to God in the midst of these things. But there's something decidedly different and and, and less intimate with our relationship with God now to what it will be when the perfect comes, when we live forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. And it's one of intimacy. It's one of beauty. Because now I know in part, then I shall know fully. And there are things that I tell you now that I absolutely want to know. I'm sure that when I make it and I'm able to spend eternity with God, some of the questions that nag at my heart today will pass. God, why did you take so and so? God, why this travesty? God, why such incredible inequity? God, why so much hate? God, why so long? These are the questions that nag at my heart. These are the things that I want to know for you and for me. But I don't know. But he tells me quite simply, he says, he says, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Listen to this. Even though today there are things about God you're curious about, you're confused about, or completely unknown to you, there is nothing about you that our God is curious about, unfamiliar with, or that he does not know. This is both wonderful and terrifying. It's wonderful that knowing all the inadequacies of my heart, that knowing all of my failures, and knowing all the way that I would lead people around me to fail, knowing all of those things, still I'm offered and extended the free gift of salvation in Jesus. That's the depth of his love. His love that knows no end. His love that is eternal. His love that is meeting you in the midst of your life. You have been fully known. And someday you will fully know. He says, so now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. Back in chapter 13 and verse 7, he said, love bears all things. It believes all things, so it has faith in all things. It hopes all things. Love assumes, it takes in the totality of, of both hope and faith. And love is the greatest of it. And so love should be what we're known for. As a church, as, as Christians individually, and as a church corporately, love should be the overriding thing that we're known for. And so it really provides this fantastic rubric of evaluation of placing uh, all of our programs and all of our systems and all of our thoughts and governing all of them and asking the question, is love discernible in this? Is this a pragmatic decision uh, meant to draw people in or meant to elicit this? Or is this because we're so burdened with love flowing from God to them, we have a love coming from the creator to the created that we have to make this decision? Because engaging as a Christian and engaging as a church is to engage in work that matters eternally. It is eternal. Your conversations with people are are opportunities to change their eternity. And so our love has an 
outward focus. Let's think about just four things as we begin to close of why the eternal quality of love matters. In terms of our decisions, you're going to have a number of, of amoral decisions to make. Not, not immoral. Some of you make those effortlessly. But just the idea of, of amoral decisions. So you get ready to make it, and it's got no ethical component to it. So it's not, do I kill or do I not kill? But it's like, do I eat pizza or do I eat a hamburger? Do I take this job or that job? And so these kind of non-ethical, amoral decisions. So we begin to make these. One of the things that we tend to think of in making these decisions primarily is what is the, the benefit to me for making these decisions? How am I going to benefit? I, I'm going to pursue this job. You know, is it more money? What are the benefits like? Oh, how nice is that city? But when we, when we preempt all these decisions with the rubric and the understanding and the genesis of love, it begins to change this. Is this city, is this move, is this job going to enhance or change my ability to extend love to others? I would make the argument that if you're a Christian and it's going to work to significantly diminish your ability to extend love to others, you can't take it. The world primarily knows the love of God through our gracious extension of it. And so, if you're faced with making a decision that is going to lead you to walk and live in a reality that restricts your ability to graciously extend love to other people, it's just not a choice for you. That's a difficult thing to walk through. Because it asks us to project into the future, where we're going to be, and how these things are going to play out, and it's so much more of a difficult response than, and, and, and thought process than, am I going to make more money? Is it going to be more satisfying? As if money and your personal satisfaction were the ultimate things. Work. And how we work and which jobs we take, the understanding of, of, of love, to be burdened in love for somebody should drive us to work hard for their benefit. Our, our work is a good thing. Work existed prior to the fall. It's been corrupted now. Some of us work too much. Some of us work too little. But in the midst of love, we're able to extend, in the midst of work, rather, we're able to extend love to those around us. And so some of us are teachers. And, and you're around kids who are never told uh, that they're loved. You're around, if you're a GISD teacher, you're around in the midst of a community that, that seems, according to social media, bent on just kind of denigrating you and speaking poorly to you, and you have an opportunity to stand in the middle of this, not to rebut all the claims, but to stand in the middle of this and say, man, we want to be beacons of love. We want to be beacons of love. And you can do this at L3, and you can do this in the police force, and you can do this at the fire station, and you can do this in each and every walk of life God has given you can graciously extend love, and I think that's what the Bible calls us to. In parenting, parenting, we have the ability to take our children and to model for them the love of God, right? Imperfectly. Look, we're going to raise our voice. We're going to do things that, that lead our kids to recognize that we're sinners, and they're going to get there, and they're going to remind you of that, and that's fun. But, but we have an opportunity in this to continue to direct them to the gracious, loving character of our God and Father in heaven. So in the midst of our failures, we go to them and we're like, hey, look, at, at an age-appropriate time, two is just not great. Hey, how are you? Blah, 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 blah. Daddy failed, blah, blah. You know, they don't get that. But when they get a little bit older, they begin to, and they'll bring that up to you, and you can say, hey, you know, the way that dad responded earlier, that wasn't loving. Like, dad was wrong. 
when he did this. And if your kids are anything like my kids, they'll tell you all the reasons it was wrong, and that's fun. But it's, it's for your good. God is using your kids for your own sanctification. In the midst of parenting, there's this terrific opportunity to show love to those around us. In retirement, we live in a wealthy country, and many of us are headed towards and thinking about, and some of us too often, thinking about the aspect of retirement. But when you begin to think about retirement in terms of, of how does retirement set me up to more graciously lavish the love of God on those around me, it has the possibility of fundamentally changing your life and altering the course that you're headed on. So instead of working tirelessly to save up more and more money for more and more satisfaction for you, you're saving up money so that at some point, in some point soon, you can come to a place where you just live on mission. And so you say, God, I want to extend your love to the nations, and I never have to draw a paycheck again so I can move into an entirely impoverished country, and I can stay there, and I never have to come back home, and I never as an older person ever have to go to Disney World, and I think that's a good thing, but, but I get to stay on mission for you because I've set my life on retiring in love. Love can transform. Love can, love can transform every conversation that you have. Love can transform every decision that you make. And as God extends it, in his love and in his compassion, he extends to you an open invitation to respond to his love in the person of Jesus. When we were lost, bewildered, confused, disinterested, and set apart against God, he purposed in eternity past to send his son Jesus to die for you. Unloving, uncaring, broken. He bids you to come and to know him. And in knowing Jesus, to experience love. Love can change everything. And for many of us, it already has. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your son Jesus, for the way that we have been loved in him, him who knew no sin. So God, I want to pray for those in this room who have yet to respond to your gracious invitation of love. they might come to you crying out for salvation, crying out to be forgiven, that they could know your love today. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would be burdening our hearts to walk in love. Show us all the various ways that everything you've given us is an opportunity to display the love of God. Change us, burden us, give us a fire in our stomach. We submit these things to you in your son Christ's name. Amen.